Hi, it's Kimmy. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to let you know that we'll be talking about gun violence and domestic violence. We do our best at All the Wiser to talk about harrowing stories with thoughtfulness and care, but we also recognize that certain topics, like this one, may be more sensitive to some listeners. So if that is you, then feel free to skip this one. We'll be here for you when you come back. Now, on to today's episode. There's a term in the domestic violence community called love bombing, and I know he love bombed me when it came to Henry, especially early on. He wanted to prove that he was going to be this amazing stepdad to my child, and he did the cooking. He went and bought him a bike, taught him how to at least ride with training wheels, buying him things, planning things to do together, that kind of thing. And then... Is it like an intoxicating wave of love to suck you in? Absolutely. We've all seen the movies, read the books, heard the songs. There is just something about a head-over-heels romance that is electric. Who doesn't want to be showered with attention and told how wonderful we are? And you are wonderful. But when does a compliment or a romantic gesture become a tactic. For Kate Ranta, the red flag showed up slowly, so they were easy to ignore. But as time passed, so did her too-good-to-be-true husband. He became angry and controlling, each move so calculated that even law enforcement looked the other way. No one thought it would happen. He wasn't capable of such a thing. Until he was. I want to say that people think they understand what it would be like to be in a shooting, but they really don't. It's fast forward, but slow motion and tunnel vision and denial, and your brain is trying to catch up to what's already happening. Today, how one woman's miraculous survival is saving the lives of countless victims of domestic violence and just might save the life of someone you love. I'm Kimmy Culp, and this is All the Wiser, a show about hope and possibility on the other side of pain. Domestic violence is a major issue in this country and around the world. Its impact can be felt far and wide. One in every four women will experience domestic violence in her lifetime. And on average, more than three women and one man are murdered by their intimate partners every single day. Those numbers may be staggering, but there are so many great organizations and people working to end domestic violence and support its survivors. Kate Branta is one of them. I was... 34 and a single mom with my older son living in the Washington, D.C. area. I had been separated slash divorced from his father for about three years, maybe. I had a lot of friends that were doing online dating. And in 2007, it was kind of the early days of that. I, I believe it was Yahoo Personals. That's how 
long ago this was, um, but way before apps. When Kate decided to create an online dating profile, she didn't take it too seriously. She just wanted an easy way to go on a few dates and meet some new people. And that is where she met Tom. She liked him, and he liked her back. They exchanged emails and phone numbers and set up their first date. He picked me up, and he showed up at the door, and he had flowers for me. I opened the door, and he had this really big, now in retrospect, fake-looking smile, big toothy smile, was like, hi, I'm Tom, and seemed, it just, the way he said it and the way he looked made me pause really for half a second. Like, huh. Like he's, He looks a little weird, but then he had flowers, and I just kind of blew it off and moved on. And he took me to a sushi restaurant in Virginia, uh, near where we lived. I was like completely like enamored with him. I thought he was so handsome. He seemed very interested in asking questions about me and about my life and talked a little bit about himself, but he was really asking a lot of questions about me. And we just, we, I mean, I would call it a really good first date. So, yeah, it sounds like he's handsome, he's charming, mm-hmm. and interested in you, which all yes. attractive things. And at, the, at first, I really was surprised just because he was so handsome. And I know it sounds shallow, but I was like, okay, I'm a single mom. Like, this guy can probably get anyone he wants. And I, I didn't think he was going to be interested in me at all or want to deal with a woman with a child, you know? And so it was surprising to me in a, in a really good way that he seemed that interested in me. So beyond the companionship and being attracted to him, having, you know, somebody handsome and charming to spend time with and date, on a deeper level, was there a need inside you that you thought or presumed he could meet? So I, again, was a single mom. My son was three and a half when I met Tom. And being a single mom is hard, you know. Uh, I was living with a friend and her twins, so we were single moms kind of sharing a space, and that was helpful. But it's not the same thing as being in a relationship, you know. And when I first met Tom, he was uh, very attentive He was very helpful in that I had a long commute from work back home. And once we, you know, got established and started really dating, he would do things like pick my son up from daycare and bring him home. So I didn't have to rush out of the office and rush to the daycare to pick him up in time before the preschool closed. That sort of stuff. Just um, anything down to my car needed an oil change. He, he was very Mr. Fix-It, take care of a lot of things that would make my life easier. He really seemed to just want to take care of my needs and very like just into me and very protective. And I don't know, maybe that felt really safe on some level and flattering he was like enhancing my life, which is what you look for in partners, right? You want them to enhance your life. And that's what I felt that he was doing. 
And how quickly did the relationship progress? It progressed very quickly. We went on that first date. And then I want to say within a day or two, we decided to be exclusive, that we would only date each other. And we spent a lot of time together. He asked me to move in with him after three months. I met him in July and I moved in by October. And then I got pregnant with my son, William, with him that December. And then we were married by March. So all in all, the whirlwind was like six months long. Wow. So you have Henry, your toddler, yes. pregnant with William. You move in with Tom. What is that? How are you experiencing that sort of moving in and, and being in a committed relationship and leaving that singlehood, single motherhood behind? I do recognize that when I was moving in with him, I felt a sense of guilt of kind of bailing on my friend who I had, you know, moved in with, with our children. I broke the lease and moved in with him because I just felt like that was what I needed to do. And I thought that I was going down a road that might lead to maybe forever marriage and having another child. I definitely wanted to have another child. I was only 34. So it seemed like a good next move to make on all kinds of levels. So when I moved in with him, the one thing that really gave me pause and made me uncomfortable was that he had a lot of guns in his home. Tom was a captain at the time in the Air Force, a little over 20 years in at that point. And he came from a family that hunted and the military. And so I, I, while I was uncomfortable with guns, I didn't grow up around them. My parents were educators. I just was never around guns. It made me uncomfortable, but then I kind of was like, well, this is how he grew up. This is his culture. He knows how to use them. He knows how to be safe. I'm sure it's fine. He had a gun cabinet with a whole lot of hunting rifles. Those were antiques from his father. And those were in a like locked up case. So it, those didn't bother me too much. But he did have two shotguns. One was under the bed on his side, no trigger locks, nothing. And he had handguns too that were just in like the end table drawers. And so while I was moving in with my three and a half year old, I knew enough to say, hey, you know, I have a toddler. <laughs> Can you please lock up the guns or get trigger locks? And his reaction, especially about the shotgun, was that, well, the whole reason he has it is if an intruder comes in and he needs to grab it and go and kill the intruder, protect his property, defend himself. So he, he did push back a little bit on that, but I, I definitely was adamant and he, he did go and he, he got the trigger locks and put the handguns away. You know, you talk about 
the incremental steps of an abuser and how sort of small and nuanced they are. And it's only when looking back that you can piece all of those small moments. So I'm curious now that that you have the time and the perspective and the wisdom, what are some of the small incremental behaviors or actions that were red flags? Um, One of the earliest ones that I can remember is I was using his computer and I had my email open and I think I went to bathe Henry and I just left it open because I had nothing to hide. And he went and looked in my email and found an email from a former male colleague that I had never been involved with from several months earlier. We were working like in buildings across the street from each other. We had met to have lunch and he just like thanked me for having lunch. It was completely fine. There was, you know, there was nothing to be upset about, but he, he made an issue about it and confronted me. And I asked him why he was reading my emails And he just said that we have to have trust for each other and that I shouldn't be meeting men for lunch and that kind of stuff. And no matter how much I explained to him that this wasn't like a former lover, this wasn't somebody that I had ever been interested in, it was just a lunch. Um, He put his foot down over it and said that his therapist had said that a couple, especially a new couple, shouldn't have friends of the opposite sex because that opens the door for infidelity. In my head, I thought, well, this is this is dumb. I didn't do anything, but I want to respect this relationship and I want to respect how he feels. So I guess I'll cut off all my male friends. <laughs> and that's that's what happened. And he did the same thing with joining Facebook was kind of the early days of Facebook when adults were starting to join it and a lot of my friends and family had joined and he got upset about that with the same argument that it would open the door for infidelity because possibly men from my past and or college high school who maybe had a crush on me at some point or something would reach out to me and that could lead to me cheating on him. So... I did get around that by saying that I would join, but I would only have male family members and then female family members and friends. Oh, and then he demanded that if I was got a friend request from a man who wasn't a family member that I was to tell him. That kind of controlling, extremely controlling behavior. But it put me in a position where I felt like I had to like prove myself all the time. You know, I had to prove my love. And if only if only he could see this, then he just wouldn't worry about it because he didn't have anything to worry about. That kind of thing. Yeah, that makes sense. And at the time, did you feel like your world was closing in or is it only in the looking back? I think in the looking back, I see it. But in the moment, I didn't recognize it as controlling behavior at the time. I thought it was weird and I thought it was a little over the top, like, come on. But then I just thought, well, he had claimed that his uh, wife before me had cheated on him. And so then I had that whole like, well, 
he must have abandonment issues and trust issues and I have to prove to him. And, and it was that kind of toxic thinking that I was falling into, but I didn't recognize it at the time. And I know another thing is you changed your body form and something. I did. Yeah. Can you share that story? Well, there's two. <laughs> um, the first was early on. I had from birth like a small mole on the left-hand side of my nose. And it was kind of one of those signature things, you know? It wasn't humongous. <laughs> it was just it was just there and it was just something I always had. And early on when we were dating, probably right after I moved in actually, he started saying things like I would be so much prettier if I didn't have that mole on my face. I was still in a people-pleasing mode and wanting to keep his attention and wanting to be the prettiest person that I could be to keep his attention and that that kind of thing. And so I literally made an appointment with a dermatologist and had that mole removed. And that was something that was with me as long as I can remember. Like I changed something on my face. <laughs> and the irony is that the wound didn't even heal properly. And so now I have a scar on the side of my nose where my mole was. I mean, I don't notice that anymore, but it's almost even worse, you know, like that it actually like damaged something rather than just keeping what, what was mine. And you said it was actually something you, you liked about yourself. I did. And what was the second time? The second time it was after I had my son, William, who, I mean, admittedly was a big baby. <laughs> he was almost like nine pounds. And I, my stomach was huge and all out front, you know. And after I had him, I didn't bounce back the same way I did when I had Henry. Because I was like five years older as well. So he would do things like mock my my stomach, which I was very self-conscious of. I, I had always been self-conscious of it, you know, and, and then I wasn't bouncing back and I just felt awful. And he would come up and like jiggle it, like up, come up behind me and jiggle it and kind of like laugh. And he knew that I didn't like that and that I was uncomfortable. Then it was like, well, why don't you get a tummy tuck? So that's what I did. I was that desperate to get back to normal, I was willing to do something that extreme and not that long after I had a child. And I know to listeners, this just sounds like, why would you do that? Why, why would you do that? But it's so hard to explain how you feel in that moment, like the shame and just the kind of desperate feeling to hang on to this. Yeah. I had had failed relationships in the past and I, I, was feeling like, I, I, you know, I can't lose this one too. And so I was really willing to, I guess, go to extremes. I like to think we have really compassionate listeners. So okay. I, I hope they aren't, I hope they don't experience it because hearing you share it makes a lot of sense to me. I think you're beautifully illustrating where you were emotionally. Yeah, very low self-esteem, very vulnerable. He had such 
a focus on looks and what he liked. Like he wanted my hair long and blonde, that kind of thing. Like I needed to basically be like a trophy wife that I felt that kind of pressure. It wasn't long after Kate and Tom settled into a townhouse in Alexandria, Virginia, that Tom became fixated on the idea that they should move to a military base. He looked into an army post, which had brand new officer housing. He sold her on the convenience and safety of it, and that it would be such a nice place to raise the baby they were expecting together. And it was nice. But moving onto the base further isolated Kate from the friend she had had for 13 years, her entire adult life. He, he had me just completely to himself. He also, he would not work full days at the Air Force Base. He would go into Andrews in the morning, put in a few hours and be home by lunch. He would bring me lunch and he was just always there. He was always around and just always wanting my attention even when I was working. So isolation plus just like possession was what I was experiencing at Fort Belfort. Yeah, I, I heard you talk about even when you would have the opportunity to get out and there was a mom's night out mm -hmm. or wife's that he would obsessively call and make up the baby sick to just complete possessive, obsessive, controlling behavior. Correct. The uh, military wives that I made friends with, I would have thought that would have been a safe bet for him that he would have no problem with the military wives. But we had monthly like get-togethers, cards and dice games and just, it was fun. We, you know, we would just have fun. And um, yeah, he would uh, blow up my phone with texts the entire time claiming things like that. Henry was sick or Will was sick or I needed to come home right away or or basically indicating that I was a bad mom for being with the wives and not at home with them. So it was like out of, on one hand, he like would pretend to encourage me to make friends with the military wives and kind of have a life on the base. And then I would go do things. And then it was always a nightmare because he would then make me feel guilty and want me home. It was a lot. I remember one of the wives has a picture of me during one of those nights where I'm, you could see I'm texting and I don't know whatever happened to that picture, but I can picture it in my mind. And when I saw it, I was like, I know exactly what was going on in that picture. I was responding to Tom. You can tell on my face, like, like I'm not smiling while texting. <laughs> yeah. I just wanted to, I just wanted to have some time for myself, of you know? Of course. Yes, of course. How was he as a father and a stepfather? So there's a term in the domestic violence community called love bombing. And I know he love bombed me when it came to Henry, especially early on. He wanted to prove that he was going to be this amazing stepdad to my child. And he did the cooking. He went and bought him a bike, taught him how to at least ride with training wheels, buying him things, planning things to do together, that kind of thing. And then... Is it like an intoxicating wave of love to suck you in? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And to yeah. also just prove to me that, oh, he's going to love me and my child's. Look at how great he is with my son. 
that it was absolutely like on purpose trying to prove to me and show me that he was going to do this and not in a good way. <laughs> Looking back, it was all just to lure me in. And I know that because as soon as William was born, so that's his own son, he started becoming uh, like increasingly agitated toward Henry. He would make claims like he saw Henry, quote, hyperextend William's leg, that he saw him push Will down on the bed. He made this door stopper out of wood and nails and put it on the inside of the door of William's nursery, telling me that he wanted to keep Henry out of William's nursery while the baby was sleeping because he didn't want Henry to like smother or kill the baby. And I'm there like, my son would never do any of those things. Like ever, ever, ever. He's like the kindest, sweetest little boy. Like he would never do anything. But he just was increasingly becoming like accusatory of Henry and making up lies, frankly. But I was so entrenched at that point. I, I was in Fort Belvoir, isolated, small, small child. I probably had postpartum. <laughs> it was, you know, this was happening when Will was probably three months old. It was awful. It was just awful. At this point, did anybody else have concerns? Was your, you know, ex-husband, family, friends, or were you so isolated that people didn't even have the opportunity to observe? I found out subsequently that several people were very concerned, but I'm so confident and I don't want to say hard-headed because I'm not. I'm very reasonable. But, you know, when I want to do something, I'm going to go do it. Like, I'm doing it, especially when I was younger. I think people felt like they didn't want to alienate me or think they were, like, starting up trouble in my life or not being supportive. And so nobody really said anything until after the fact. And everybody that saw things has learned that going forward, they're like, um, if we see something bad with anybody else in our lives, like we're saying something right away. Well, I, I don't care <laughs> because of how dark this turned. So tell me about the move to Florida because I know it would be somewhat shortly after that move that, that things would get really dark really quick. Yes. So while we were living in Fort Belvoir, Tom was in his early 40s getting ready to retire after about 25 years of service. And my parents had moved down to South Florida to be near my brother. And I'm very close with my family. And I, I really wanted to move down to Florida as well when he retired because there was nothing really keeping us in the DC area that had never been, you know, where I wanted to settle forever type of thing. I, I wanted to be near my family. And so he agreed. And I, I, to this day, don't really know why he agreed because of the isolation factor. <laughs> like, why would he agree for me to be close to my parents and my brother, you know? But he did, and we 
actually bought land and had a brand new house built about a mile from my parents, all while we were still living in Virginia. At the time of the move, Tom's retirement papers had not come in. So he fabricated some documents to have the military moving company take their stuff from Virginia to Florida. Kate was against it because fraud, but there was no stopping him. Plus, Tom had no oversight from his commanders. He never went into the office and constantly made up excuses about doctor's appointments, physical therapy visits. So even though he was still active duty when they moved, none of his superiors knew he left Virginia, that he had gone AWOL. So moving truck came, took our stuff. We moved it down to Florida and it was perfect. Aside from not having my older son with me, but then everything just completely spiraled out of control as soon as we got to Florida. So your older son stayed to be with his dad for custody, is that right? Yeah, so when Tom was making all of those accusations against him, he also planted the seed of Henry going to live with his father when we moved to Florida because he's, quote, closer to his father anyway, and he would feel bad for his dad. And the only way I can describe it is that I was in an absolute fog. There's nothing on this planet that would have, in any other circumstance, would I have my son go live full-time with his father. Like, that's just not what I would have done. But in that situation, I felt scared on one level because of the accusations that he was increasingly making. And he did say that if Henry hurt the baby in any way, he would kill him. Like he used that word. And so I I think my thinking was that if he went to live with his father, he would be safe and that he could still come see us, but it would be for his breaks and shorter periods of time. So then maybe I could handle it and Tom could deal with it. And I, I could control that situation better than if Henry was living with us full time. I know it doesn't sound like it makes a lot of sense, but that's that's where I was. Well, it's almost like an innate protecting him, right? Because I it imagine, is. yeah, you're, whether it was subconscious or not, your intuition as a mother was that he wasn't safe. And after lots and lots of therapy, that's definitely where we've landed. Because I've always had a very hard time explaining that situation and where my mindset was. Because as mothers, obviously... There's a lot of like mom guilt and blaming moms and shaming moms for this and that. And how could you let your son? Well, I mean, he was going to live with his father. It's not like he was going anywhere else. He was going to live with his father who loves him too. But, you know, it's always like the mother, why would she do that? There must be something wrong with her. But that's just not true. That's not where it was. Yeah. And it was painful, painful and... I hate it to this day. I may have the quote wrong, but the two, you know, overwhelming emotions of motherhood are love and guilt, right? This just unexplainable love. And I think guilt when we feel that we fall short. And then in your case, feeling 
ashamed or shamed that you didn't keep your son with you. So I think I hear you why all of that makes sense and it's real, but the context is so critically important of what was what happening can happen to you. Because yes. like I said, in any other universe that there's no way that that would have happened. I hear um, that. I see, I see uh, you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, but that was, a, you know, that was incredibly painful. So when we moved to Florida, it was all feeling kind of bittersweet for me. On the one hand, I was excited to be closer to my family, but a piece of me was being left behind. Coming up, things quickly get real for Kate in Florida as Tom unleashes the deadly darkness within him. You don't want to miss what happens next. Stay with us. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every episode you hear, we donate $2,000 to our guest's favorite charity. Today's episode benefits Love Life Now Foundation a global awareness and education organization that supports survivors of domestic violence. Their year-round events and initiatives raise much-needed money for domestic violence shelters and programs. You can find out more about their work, sign up to volunteer, or make a charitable contribution at livelifenow.org. We're back, and Kate, Tom, and their son, William, have left the isolation of the military base and moved to Florida to be closer to Kate's family. Meanwhile, Tom's behavior was becoming erratic. He had begun abusing opioids when they were living on the base in Virginia. According to Kate, the military was giving him Oxycontin like it was candy. Big jars of it. By the time they got to Florida, he was crushing and snorting them. There was one night where he supposedly took a handful of Ambien and was stumbling around naked all over our house. I woke up and was following him around the house. He was not making sense. He went down the hallway and fell headfirst into the bathtub and was like bleeding from his nose. I wound up calling 911 and having them take him. And by that point, I was just so disgusted. I didn't even go because I had small children at home. I was like, I'm not going. He can just call me in the morning. And then he did. He called me in the morning and acted like nothing happened. Could I just come get him? He never said if his stomach was pumped. He never said what happened in the hospital. Just it felt like a tornado was beginning to happen all around me, and I could not tame it. So the tornado culminated at the end of 2010 when he was in Henry's bedroom. Henry was visiting, playing a video game with him, and I walked in looking at my phone and kind of chuckling and I had been looking at Facebook 
and I was looking at a friend's post and comments and I could see that like some guy I went to high school with had said something funny and it was it was that it was that I walked in and I was laughing he's like oh it's funny like not in a mean way he just like was like oh it's funny and I told him oh so and so I'm on this post and so and so from high school said something this is hilarious and I read it and this like darkness just came over his face and he put the remote down and um, started like accusing me of cheating and left the house just abruptly left the house and so I of course was crying and stressed out he began texting me for the next many many hours saying that he was now at a strip club and was so drunk and all these women were all over him and just would not stop texting me and accusing me of of cheating and so one of the last texts where he said he was so drunk, I said, do not effing come home in this state. There's young children in the home. Do not come home in this state. Next thing you know, he walks in. I got up out of bed and like went out to meet him. He walks right past me and slams the bedroom door. And so I like sat on the couch and just felt deflated and completely helpless and scared, frankly. And I was crying and then I went to the master bedroom door and I heard like the cocking of a gun and I was like oh crap like he's okay I just heard a gun so I ran through the house and went out the front door and I I called 911 and I remember thinking if he does this I want to be outside so people hear it then the next thing I know the garage door opens and now he walks with William who was two and in like a sleep sack he had taken him out of his crib and got in the car and put William on his lap as if to drive off and so I had to make like a split decision on what to do and so I jumped in the car too I was still on with 911 and I was saying he's leaving with our son I think he has a gun he grabbed my phone turned it off and then threw it like on the ground of the car and then sped off up the street with us in the car. He got to the stop sign and raised his fist, which is the first time he had done that and said, get out of this fucking car or I'm going to punch you in your fucking face. Just the darkness. I'd never seen him look like that before. And I didn't know what to do, you know, because he had my son and I was like, please give me the baby. Please give me the baby. And he kept threatening me. And so I did. I got out of the car and then he turned and sped off up the street and I ran to the end of the street and then I saw the taillights come on. He started backing up quickly like he was going to come get me. So I jumped into some like bushes that the neighbors had to hide. I've I'd never done any. This has never happened to me before. Then he, he couldn't see me. So he drove off and I started running down my street saying like help help he has my baby he has my baby somebody help not one person came out like florida (laughs) like like nice community nobody came out nobody even yelled from the window like are you okay do you need to call 911 nothing and i mean yes it was the middle of the night but i was knocking on doors ringing doorbells nobody would help me so i thought okay the police are probably there because i called 911 so i ran down the street and come to see him standing there buddy buddy 
passing out his little military coins that he had and talking about how he's this big war veteran and that the scars on his arms are from a Humvee explosion in Iraq and just outright lying, making up outright lies to these cops and they're eating it up. And I will come up traumatized, bawling my eyes out. I had like peed myself. (laughs) I was so scared. I looked like a, a disaster. And so, of course, so he looks calm, and you look and quote I unquote look like crazy. A, his, the hysterical wife, the crazy wife, and that he did say that. Oh, my wife loves drama. So one cop did pull me aside and said he'd seen this before, and if he didn't hit me this time, he would hit me the next time. Go get a restraining order. Like literally, there was one cop that like helped me. Otherwise, all the rest were sucking up to him. So. They de-escalated it, had me call my parents in the middle of the night, had to get both my kids up again. He had returned William to his crib, so they couldn't arrest him for anything. And they made me and the kids leave and go with my parents, and they let him stay in the house, saying that he had nowhere else to go and that I could leave with the kids. I know there's systematic failures and hurdles, and you're Mm -hmm. sleep-deprived and traumatized, So talk to me about that process of trying to get the restraining order. It was awful and scary and terrifying. I was in shock. My father took me to the courthouse the next morning. I was in shock. I was shaking, cold, all over, chattering. I had no idea. Nothing like this had ever happened to me before. So you can imagine the fear of then having to go to a courthouse and do this like legal stuff at Broward County courthouse. It was ridiculous. The room was dark. They give you this big packet of paperwork. There's no advocate there to help you walk through what you know, need to check where you should say in your narrative, you know, there's where do you need him to stay away from? Where do you, nobody was there to help me. Just the whole experience was negative. Even handing the page to the person, she was like all cranky and not kind and not empathetic. And it's like, okay, we'll give this to the judge, uh, come back at four and you'll know if it's granted or not. So you don't even get to plead your case directly to the judge. This is in Florida they're just going on written word. <laughs> it was just awful. So that first time it was granted, I was granted a temporary restraining order. And that night, the police served him with it. He tried to evade them. He saw them coming and tried to drive off. And they had to like corner him at the end of our street and serve him the paperwork. And it was at that time as well, the police told us that under the temporary restraining order, they could remove all the guns that were in the home. So they asked where those were. And I told them, and then they said, well, but he could go get a legal gun tomorrow. He can legally go purchase another gun tomorrow. There's nothing stopping him because it's a temporary restraining order. There's no domestic violence conviction. So that's a giant loophole in the law. (laughs) So the, OSI gets involved? Yes. So after I got the temporary restraining order, I contacted his commander and sent the paperwork to him along with the fraudulent document. And I said, you have a soldier that's down here in Florida. And you didn't know that, but 
now we have domestic violence. Um, what do I do? He contacted me and was super like careful and even somewhat snarky, like asking me what I did like for this to happen. You know what I mean? Like yeah. kind of trying to make it my fault and save face for himself. But the call she made to the Office of Special Investigations, which is like the FBI for the military, did get passed on. They conducted a three-month investigation into Tom, the fraudulent document, and for going AWOL, but not for spousal abuse, even though Kate had shared the restraining order. Three months later, Kate received a notice from the OSI. They had found him guilty and were recommending a court-martial. But they were leaving it up to his commanders to decide. So I still was naive. I still had hope that the military would do the right thing. But unfortunately, I got a call from his commander not too long after that saying that they had handled this administratively, that he was being honorably retired. So he would still get his full pension and benefits because of his 25 years of service. And I just started crying. And I I mean, during the investigation, they had held him up at the military base in D.C. And they lost him twice. He went AWOL twice on them. I mean, the honorable discharge. And they gave him an honorable discharge. And they knew that they even. I I don't know. They knew that he was he was dangerous. 100%. And I said, you know that you're just letting him go and he's going to come after me, right? And they said, well, he's served for 25 years and deserves his pension and disability. Wow. So you guys, after all of this, end up very briefly getting back together. Correct. And I think it's such a good opportunity to educate and understand here because I feel like this is the point in the in the movie where everyone's shaking their heads. No. Yes. Don't do it. (laughs) Don't do it. And I think it's such an important part of the conversation for people to create awareness about how this happens and why this happens. You know, you've said it takes women seven to nine times to leave. There's financial control, all of these aspects. I know you're in a really bad place. He's sort of done his manipulative thing that he's going to right the wrong and he's now, you know, financially stable. He's going to fix things. But explain to me, you know, the choice to come back and what's that wrapped in? It was not easy. I won't say that it was an easy choice to make. I was very nervous. I did not trust him. I was still heavily traumatized by what he had done, meaning basically kidnapping Will and threatening to punch me. Eight months had gone by, and I was in a really vulnerable position. My car had been repossessed. I couldn't afford by myself, the life that we had created. Couldn't afford my car, so that got repossessed. Couldn't afford to pay the full mortgage. We had been splitting it. I had started a new job in Florida, and I wasn't making a Northeast salary. I was making a Florida salary, which was about half of what I had been making in the D.C. area. 
And William was in preschool, which is a rent payment as it is. So I was in a really bad financial spot. And I was also just very vulnerable emotionally and psychologically too. I mean, this was another failed relationship. I was struggling. It was, quote, easy to fall back into his lies and into his promises to believe that maybe it was just a one-off because as I had said, he had never physically hurt me before. He didn't even punch me that night. So maybe it was just one bad night. That was what was in my head. Maybe he learned his lesson. You know, he promised me that he had stopped taking opioids and that he would take drug tests for me to prove that he wasn't doing him. You know, you can quit that job and you can stay home with William and raise him and be, you know, a full-time mom to him. And just all of those kinds of, you know, dangling the carrot kind of. It was also in the summertime. My parents were not in Florida. They were up in Rockport, Massachusetts, where they would spend summers. So I was just very alone. I was like isolated again, but not their fault. (laughs) Just that's where it was. I was, I did not feel I had the network that summer that I really needed to stay strong. And he was able to weasel his way back in to the horror of my parents, my brother, my friends, nobody, nobody felt comfortable about this. I'm lucky enough to be loved enough that nobody shamed me. Nobody turned their back against me. Nobody really yelled at me, but it was clear that everybody was very uncomfortable with this and did not trust him. Yeah. And it's, I imagine he saw the opportunity and knew all the right levers to pull. He knew exactly what to say and that he had this big pension and disability from the military and that he was going to get like a six-figure job and we would be like financially set and we could be a family again, all of that stuff. But I was not, I remember being physically uncomfortable when he came back. So it's not like I went into it everything is so wonderful and perfect. I was wary. And I think by this time, there's obviously police, there's law enforcement, there's military, there's the OSI. And you said the amount of time people said, but he presents so well. He looks so normal. Yep. Tom is definitely somebody who's skated by in life on his looks. And I experienced that directly i saw i saw it many many times there was uh, an incident in 2011 where he gave we believe it was a sleeping pill possibly to william and he was only 2 i could tell something was wrong because william was acting like he was hallucinating and couldn't stand up straight and i said to tom would you give him and he claimed it was Motrin only, but I could tell, you know your child, I could tell something was wrong. And so I yelled at him to call 911 and he was kind of hemming and hawing about it. And I just yelled at him again to do it. And so he did. And the paramedics came and then a sheriff also came because of the previous domestic violence at our home. Like our home was flagged. They assessed Will. I went in the ambulance with him and... Tom drove separately and the sheriff also accompanied. And while we were in the room, 
waiting for results for William, the sheriff was standing by the nurse's station and caught my eye and like subtly kind of motioned for me to come over to him. And I did. And I remember Tom watching me. The guy was really good about it. I will say he just very casually was like, is everything okay at home? Like very low, you know? And I was like, no. And he said, okay, you're going to go home and uh, child protective services representative is going to be there and we're going to get you out of this. Like, we know he's dangerous. And I was like, okay. And then all of a sudden, like, Tom was right next to me. So he knew something was up. (laughs) We were discharged. We got in the car. He started, like, screaming at me about, like, making him call 911 and that we were going to get in trouble and Will could possibly be taken from us. So he kind of got the vibe that something was going to happen. As soon as we got home, the sheriff was there with the... CPS representative, who I always call our guardian angel because she she saved my life. They knew, thankfully, to separate us and talk to him about what happened, talk to me about what happened. She talked to me and she was very real and was like, you need to pack a bag for yourself. You need to pack a bag for your son. You get in your car, you go to your parents and leave him. And if I find out that you go back to him, I'm taking your son. And I was like, okay, that's That's all I needed to hear. And in a way, it sounds harsh, but it wasn't. It was such a relief because somebody was taking it seriously and I had a buffer, right? I could say, well, I have to leave because if I don't, they're going to take William. I have custody of him. So if I, I, I have to leave, I think that that kept me safe for a little while because I was able to use that as the reason that I needed to be apart from him. Yeah. And those people that did the right thing, that saw you, that took it seriously, that did their jobs, you know, when so many weren't, they saved your life. They did. And after being failed so many times, like I said, it was such a relief to have somebody actually see him and see what the situation was. So you leave, you're gone, you have the validation in the story. What happens next? So the CPS investigator also said that she would call Tom herself to tell him that he was in trouble, that the state was going to be bringing charges against him, and that he was not to see me or William. And that's what happened. Child Protective Services gave him a program that he needed to complete that it included things like anger management, parenting skills, I think random drug tests. It was a checklist of like 10 things that he needed to complete in order to have unsupervised visits with William again. In the meantime, he he bailed from the area and did go back up to the DC area. So he still had the charges against him, but he wasn't living in Florida. He did have an attorney. Through that, the next nine months, he would basically fight the program any chance he got through his lawyer, trying to knock things off the list in order to gain unsupervised visits. Also, because CPS got involved, they had to check on Kate's house every month. They checked her, they checked William, they checked her house. 
but no one checked on Tom. They even waived his random drug testing because he had gotten a prescription for his opioids. The divorce lagged because of the child services case, which took precedence. And after nine months, the court dismissed and closed the case against Tom. Kate had applied for a restraining order three times, and it was denied each time. With nothing in writing about custody or visitation, Kate knew the shit was about to hit the fan. But she had no idea how deadly things were about to get. I had moved out of our house into an apartment in Coral Springs, and I had not given him the address specifically for stalking reasons. I had chosen a gated community like they have in Florida for safety reasons. And there was a security guy that drove around on a golf cart. So I I felt somewhat safe there, I guess, especially because I hadn't given him the address. So it was early November, November 2nd, 2012. And I had worked just a regular work day. I had plans to go out to dinner with my then boyfriend that evening. I got home from work, picked up William from preschool, went home to the apartment. I was getting ready to go out, giving him some snacks, getting ready. And then we went back out to the car and I turned it on. And then all of the dashboard lights lit up. One said low tire pressure. And I was like, oh shit, he found me because he previously had vandalized my car and my father's car like the year before. You know, you just have that sense. (laughs) And so I got out of the car and walked around it and I got to the passenger side tire and I saw a big slash. So I called my boyfriend and said plans were off and he knew what was going on. And I said, you know, why don't you just come over here and we'll figure it out. And I called my dad. He said he would come over and he said to call the police. And I said, well... I mean, I'll call them, but they're not going to do anything because I don't have a restraining order and I can't prove this was him. And my dad was like, well, just call and make a report anyway. So he showed up and then a young female cop showed up and I went out and talked to her and explained the history, explained what was going on. She asked if I had a protection order. I said no, that I had been turned down three times subsequently. So I had nothing. I had no video that it was him, and she just was kind of like, well, I mean, there's really nothing we can do about it. Why don't you go try to get a restraining order tomorrow? You know, I told her I was afraid. Didn't ask to see a picture of his car. Didn't offer to drive a little bit around the premises to see if he was there. Nothing. Just drove away. I went back in the house, explained what had happened, and then my dad was like, call roadside assistance to come change your tire, and then why don't you and William come over to our house and we'll figure out what to do next since he found you. So, okay, fine. So then he goes out the front door and I was standing there and he got partway up the walk and then turned back and said, Katie, call 911. Tom is here. And when I looked out in the parking lot, I could see his car backed up next to mine. And then the dome light came on and I could see him. My dad was like, I'll stay out here. And I said, no, dad, like, just come in. My dad was like 68. I didn't want him having to confront this guy, you know. My dad came in. I was on with 911. By the time my dad got in the door, my ex had gotten to the door and he began pushing against it to try to force his way into the apartment. 
And my dad and I were pushing on the other side to try to close it. And then all of a sudden we heard boom, boom, boom. Three loud booms. And bullets came through the door. I want to say that people think they understand what it would be like to be in a shooting, but they really don't. It's fast forward, but slow motion and tunnel vision and denial and your brain is trying to catch up to what's already happening, right? So he pushed his way in. I'm screaming. I went one way in the room. My dad went the other way. William was just standing there jumping up and down and screaming. I raised my hand and he shot and it went through my right hand. I hit the floor and like blood splattered up the wall and he was yelling at me, why'd you take my stuff? Why did you take my stuff? Why did you take my military stuff? And I didn't know what he was talking about. You know, he wasn't saying things like, I love you so much. If I can't have you, nobody can have you. Or I just want us to be a family. I just want to see my son. He wasn't saying those things. It was, why did you take my stuff? I I mean, I had taken like some furniture when I moved into the apartment from the house, but I had purchased the furniture. So it was just all very confusing. And I began begging for my life and saying, I'm sorry, Tom. I'm yelling, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I'll return it. Please, please, please. Over and over and over again, like to not to do it. I know at one point he walked over and yelled at my dad to push his phone away. And then I heard boom and he shot my dad. I heard my dad grunt and I thought he killed him. And so I was just on the floor thinking my father was dead. And I remember kind of crawling on the floor around the dining room table. I don't know if I was trying to hide or or what, but I moved and I remember just the blood and just my clothes were sticking to me and the smell and I knew I was in really, really bad shape. My son was standing on the other side of the table and Tom came over and knelt down and there was like a laser light on his gun and he was like taunting me with it, playing with the gun between the chairs. And then all of a sudden William screamed, don't do it, daddy, don't shoot mommy. My child was four. And I I don't know how he got those words, but he did. Tom went over into like the kitchen area, which was behind where we were. And it was got kind of quiet. And then he said, Kate, there's a table runner on the table. Wrap your wound. And so I was like, uh, like robotic, you know, I was like, okay. And so I wrapped my hand And then he said, Kate, just go. At no point during all of this and the entirety of the shooting and the entirety of the time that we were in that apartment was about 18 minutes. The cops did not kick in the door. There wasn't like a SWAT team crashing through to kill the bad guy. Nobody was coming in to save us. So when he told me to go, I thought, well... He's either going to shoot me in the back <laughs> while I leave or, you know, maybe I'll get out. So I'll just take my chances. I got up and I like stumbled out the door and then I, I fell on the ground on the grass and I could see all the cop cars lined up, all the police with their vests and guns and the lights going. And they yelled out to me, ma'am, can you get over to us? 
And I said, no, I'm dying. Help me. And they wouldn't come over. And I know I said, my four-year-old son is in there. Then about a minute or two later, out came my father, and he had William in front of him. And he was bleeding as well, but that was the first time that I realized he was still alive. And he actually thought I was dead on the floor when he left. So out there on the grass was the first time we both realized that we were at least at this point both still living. (laughs) So they said to him, sir, can you get her off the ground and get her over to us? So my bleeding shot 68-year-old father had to get me up off the ground and get us over to safety. The uh, people that are there to serve and protect did not. If you're wondering why the cops were there and didn't storm the front door, it's an excellent question. The same thing happened in Parkland, Florida, where the Stoneman Douglas shooting was. If you remember, the cops didn't go in either, because at the time there was an order from the sheriff that if there is an active shooter inside, law enforcement does not go in. This has since changed after Stoneman Douglas, but at the time of Kate's shooting, they stayed back. So the paramedics, once we were on the ground, couldn't get to us because they had to capture Tom first before anything could happen. So while we were on the ground, it was determined that I actually was shot in the chest on the left side and was bleeding. So a lot of the blood that I was covered with was actually coming from my chest. That and I didn't even realize it at the time. I just thought it was my hand. What were the injuries that you and your dad sustained? What happened to you as a result of being shot and your dad? I was shot through the right hand and then through my left breast. It went in and out of my left breast and just missed my heart. And then my dad was shot in his left arm, which is still disabled to this day. And the point blank was in his left side. The bullet was in him, but missed vital organs and they were able to remove it. And then both of us underwent surgery for my hand and for his arm the next morning. And William is taken away. William was taken away by the police and interviewed by a forensic detective at the police station all by himself, barefoot. And Tom is arrested at the scene. At the scene, yep. He was charged with five counts the two most important being premeditated attempted first-degree murder of my father and me. How long are you in the hospital? I was in the hospital for four days, and my father was in for five. Well, first of all, you know, I, I think about the layers of the roles that you're playing. You're the victim of a shooting, your mother, I imagine deeply, deeply concerned for your son, your daughter, whose father has been shot, I, what were those early days like? Guilt, guilt, guilt. <laughs> wishing I hadn't met him, wishing I could have done more to protect us, hating the fact that my father got to be 60 years old and never had any trauma in his life, to this level anyway, and was now a gun violent survivor. Guilt that my child was four and this was his father and, you know, was going to have to navigate this in his life. 
you know, he had only lived four years and already had childhood trauma. Guilt about my mother having to be the rock and put us all back together and that, you know, stress that it put on her. It was, it was really difficult. It was very dark in the early days after the shooting. And I know you had said the specialist who worked with William that the edict was really direct honesty, no skirting. He saw what he saw and that would be part of his journey of healing was just the transparency around it all. Yes, they told us to not sugarcoat anything, don't lie about any of the details, don't tell him he didn't see what he saw, don't pretend it's the big family secret. Those are all things that would really hinder his development. And that was our inclination in the first place because eventually it was like when the guilt lifted, I realized this really wasn't my fault. This was something that Tom did to me and I didn't deserve it. We didn't do anything wrong. And you know, I was going to talk about it. So. And when the early, obviously weeks, months are brutal, physically, emotionally, when does healing begin for you? I would say there's many points. Within the first year, I did a lot of occupational therapy on my hand to get it moving because the surgeon said if I didn't, it would be a claw. And I didn't want that. So I worked really hard in the first year physically to get my hand moving. And that was a big victory after one year to be able to make a fist. So that was one. The second was in 2015, I basically had like a, I don't know, a nervous breakdown or something (laughs) um, where I had to really take care of my mental health. And I, I took about three months off of work and did a lot of like intensive therapy and working on PTSD and learning about that. So I could understand what was happening to me and and not be destructive in this journey. And then I would say the biggest healing has been in the last two years since I I moved up to what I always call my safe place in Massachusetts and live near the ocean. And, you know, Will and I are just doing so well. And it was the best move that I could possibly make and just for the first time in a very long time, feeling peaceful. It's taken 10 years. It's really, I will say it's taken about a decade. I've heard you say that it's your place of peace, that you and William found yourself there. And I know another chapter of closure was after the trial, the sentencing, the the verdict. Yes. What was the verdict? And was there ever any pathology or diagnosis for Tom? Yeah, another big win for our family was at trial, even though the entire process of going to trial is extremely re-traumatizing for victims. We did win. Um, When we went to trial, the jury convicted him on all five counts. And then two months later, the judge sentenced him to 60 years in prison, which at the time he was 49. So if we do the math, that means he's never getting out of prison. So it's essentially a life sentence. So that was a really big closure for us because with having trial hanging over was very, very stressful. It was like four and a half years. As far as pathology, they hired a psychologist to try to come in and say PTSD from the military, but he had never served combat. He lied about his military service. So 
nothing was ever revealed as far as is he a psychopath, sociopath, narcissist, any of those things. I, I think he's a combination of all of it, but nothing official was ever diagnosed with him. So you had said these last two years have really been pivotal. And I think, you know, it's ironic and beautiful in a sense that, well, the end is beautiful that I know eventually you would go back on Facebook and that is where you would begin to share your story, share your voice in service of other women. Yes. And again, uniquely positioned to do so because Tom is locked away for life and you have done the hard work of healing and sharing. So where so much of the trauma and pain and drama began, you then turn it into this vehicle of good for other women. But I also, I know part of this healing the past two years, which is why you're doing interviews like this, is your book, Killing Kate. Yeah. And I love that your publisher like threw out a million names and it was actually a group of girlfriends who had said, you should call it Killing Kate. <laughs> that was the winner. <laughs> that, that it was a group of women who came up with that. But I know there's some metaphors there about the past version of yourself beyond yes. the attempt to, to kill you. So who is the Kate you shed and who is the Kate you know yourself to be today? I, I have grace and kindness for, quote, old Kate, <laughs> the previously not trauma victim, not a survivor of anything. I was energetic and trusting and fun and funny. And it's not that I'm not those things now, but I will say that going through trauma definitely impacts empathy. Not that I wasn't an empathetic person before, but I just feel like because of this, I have a lot of empathy for people's struggles and what they go through and a better understanding of why people do the things that they do, especially when it comes to domestic violence. And I also believe that because of what happened to me, I was able to really feel empowered and find my voice as a woman and what I would and would not put up with in my life and who I wanted to be and just feeling stronger in my own skin that I didn't have before. I did not have that confidence that I do now. Just as far as like saying no to things I don't want to do, <laughs> setting boundaries, sticking up for myself, that kind of stuff came very, very hard to me. I was always a people pleaser. Uh, yeah, I. It's it's been a long road in that sense, but I'm really happy where I've landed now. Just that sense of knowing really who I am. What is your greatest hope in sharing your story? At the beginning, when I was sharing my story on my my little Facebook page that started with, you know, a handful of followers and is probably at 5,600 now, was just I really wanted to treat it like a online journal and be very transparent about what had happened, share pictures, 
explain what we had been through, what was going on, and in the hopes of helping other people. None of this was ever about fame or attention or anything like that. I That's not what this was ever about. I really just wanted to, at the beginning anyway, I was like, if I help one person get out of an abusive relationship, if they see this and they get out, that's good enough for me. And that happened within the first six months of the page. So, I mean, I've done a whole lot since then, um, speaking on the steps of the Capitol and documentaries and panels and, and all kinds of media and my book. But, um, yeah, all of this has always just been in the hopes to get my story out there and really be a voice for women who've either lost their voices because they died or are too afraid to speak because their abusers are out and about in society and it's too risky for them. Because I was safe, because mine was away and can't hurt me, I wanted to be somebody that could bring it forward and say, like, enough of the blame and shame, enough of blaming women for this, like, this is ridiculous and we need to talk about it. So that's where it's always come from. I love it. What, if any, role did forgiveness or does it play in your journey of healing? That's a loaded question for me. I land on acceptance. That's where I've come to at this point in my journey. I'm not a big proponent of the word forgiveness. It's just not something that I think I personally need to do. I don't forgive him for what he did to me or his own child or my family. And I don't think I ever will. I accept that this is what happened. And I accept that I had to pick up the pieces and put our lives back together. But I, I don't think forgiveness is going to be something that I get to. And I think that's okay. I really do. It works for some people, but it's not something that I feel like emotionally or psychologically I need to do. I've already let go. Yeah, and acceptance is a powerful state in itself. Correct. And I'm yeah. comfortable in that in that space. If you or someone you know is a victim of domestic violence, you can call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233 or visit their website, thehotline.org, to chat online 24-7. Help is available. And you are not alone. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard of Podkit Productions. And that was our associate producer, Tara Daigle. And that was our editor, composer, slash sound designer, John LaSala. And this is Kimmy Colt. So until next time... Take care of yourself and each other.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.